This is an ABC podcast. Hello there, Tom Switzer here from Between the Lines. Now today, we bring you my conversation with the former Prime Minister, John Howard. He joined me to reflect on his very first election victory and his near 12 years in power. March 2, 1996, this happened. We have been elected with a mandate. We have not been elected to be just a pale imitation of the government that we have replaced. Now, from 1983 to 1996, the coalition had been in political wilderness, 13 years under the Labor governments of Prime Ministers Bob Hawke and Paul Keating. And during that time, John Howard had been shadow treasurer, opposition leader, a backbencher, a shadow minister, and then party leader again. At various stages, the press had written off Howard countless times. In 1988, for instance, Australia's then leading magazine, The Bulletin, described the unpopular opposition leader as, quote, Mr. 18%, and asked the insulting question, why does this man bother? <laughs> the critics, both inside and outside the Liberal Party, all too often derided him as yesterday's man. And on several occasions, John Howard himself seemed resigned to his fate. He once said his chances of a comeback were like Lazarus with a triple bypass. So March 2, 1996, represents one of the greatest political comebacks in modern history. How did Howard do it? Why was this election so significant? And what defines the Howard legacy? John Howard was elected to federal parliament in 1974, where he served for 33 years before losing power in 2007. He was our nation's second longest serving prime minister from early March 1996 to late November 2007. That's nearly 12 years in full. John Howard, welcome back to Radio National. Very nice to be with you, Tom. I said you're the second longest serving PM. You're also Australia's second oldest prime minister. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Menzies pipped me on both scores. Ten, uh, ten years younger than the 78-year-old Joe Biden. That's right. And, uh, <laughs> of course, <laughs> well, uh, maybe people live longer these days. <laughs> uh, I think it's, um, it was just a consequence of a number of things. I've been, I was blessed with reasonably good health uh, and that helped. And I, I think that... Um, Attitudes to age are a lot more neutral now than they might have been 30 or 40 years ago. Yeah, but if you go back to the mid-60s, the then Prime Minister, Robert Menzies, his deputy, John McEwen, the opposition leader at the time, uh, Arthur Corwell, they were in their early 70s. Now, the average male life expectancy has increased by more than five years since then. So do we discriminate against the elderly? I don't think we do consciously, but and I think these things go in cycles. Mm. Uh, I mean, America now is a lot of very old people, quite old people in leading positions. Go back to the Kennedy years. Mm. Uh, I mean, John Kennedy uh, was 42, 41 when he became president. Uh, sadly, uh, he was assassinated at the age of 45. Yeah, but you could be in your 90s and be on the US Supreme Court, but when judges in this country turn 70, they're deemed officially senile and forced to retire. That's discrimination, isn't it? Uh, well... I think in retrospect, it was a mistake 
to set the retiring age at 70, I think what should have been put in the referendum, mind you, this is a constitutional thing, mm. what should have been put in the referendum, and I say this in retrospect, was that the retiring age will be 70 or such other age as Parliament might from time to time fix. That change was made because a number of federal judges insisted on staying well beyond their, how shall I put it gently, more capable ages. Well, we've had plenty of guests on this program in their 70s and 80s, and they're just as sharp and smart as anyone my age or younger. Now, let's go back to March 1996. John Howard, were you surprised by the extent of your victory? Yes, I was. I'd, I'd become very nervous about even winning, even though we ran a good campaign, the polls were good. The Liberal Party had had so many setbacks and reverses, and I'd had a number at a personal level politically as well. So the sheer size of the majority, which grew and grew as the counting progressed, uh, surprised me. You mentioned your own political setbacks. Many people, including Liberals, wrote your political obituary in the late 1980s when you lost the leadership to Andrew Peacock. Your own colleague, John Moore, told Brisbane's Courier-Mail, this is September 1989, that you should, quote, fade away like a ghost, Quote, ghosts are pretty irrelevant, and I would have thought in this case ghosts have no substance. John Howard. <laughs> well, you know, it, it, it's easy when you finally make it to sort of look back on those things and not be particularly concerned about them, but I guess you could dig things up like that about any politician who at various stages has been written off, but I remember all of that, uh, generally speaking. Not that particular quote, but I, I might make the point that when I did become Prime Minister in '96, I included John Moore uh, in the Cabinet as Industry Minister, and he was a very good Industry Minister because he brought to the Cabinet a very good business understanding. And eventually Defence Minister during the East Timor expedition. He was eventually Defence Minister. He was a very good Minister, and, and he also... Uh, understood many aspects of Queensland politics. Indeed, John Moore, of course, was one of only two cabinet ministers from the Fraser era, the other one being you because you were treasurer. How did you bounce back after being widely ridiculed by so many people, including by your own side? Was it the family? Was it the way you were raised? What, what was it about well, your surrounding Well, it's a combination of all of those things. I mean, my family was absolutely magnificent. Uh, I had some very close friends, but I was also driven by a belief in policy change. There were certain things I wanted uh, to achieve in politics and some of the most rewarding years I had in politics were those I had in the early 90s when I was the opposition spokesman on industrial relations. I felt that the debate that took place at that time over industrial relations was very significant and that I was actually able to shift the debate uh, and, and that's the most rewarding thing to do and I've Remember, over the years, I've said to people who've come to talk to me about, oh, look, I'm, you know, I'm not going to get any further. I think I might as well get out. I said, if you're interested in a policy issue, uh, it can be very rewarding, even though you're in opposition. And that was my experience. And that was one of the things that kept me going. And I also had at the back of my mind that maybe the party might one day uh, think I could be a leader again. Uh, I wasn't sure that was going to happen, but... While you're there, mm. there's always the possibility. So this is the period from roughly May 1989 when you lost the leadership mm. right through to early 1995 when you regained it. You bled a while, a bit like Robert Menzies well, after he I, lost the leadership. I did, I yeah. did. But mm. uh, one of the things that I uh, found very helpful at the time was I was given the opportunity of writing a, 
a weekly column in The Australian. And I was able to talk about anything, and I enjoyed that experience. Under the editor, Frank Devine. Now, yeah. March 1996, a new term entered the Australian political lexicon, Howard Battler. How did you appeal to many traditional Labor voters in 1996 and thereafter? Well, I think many of the attitudes I took on uh, what I might call Australian nationalism, uh, the, the average Australian, if I can use that expression, uh, believed very much in this country and they wanted uh, a, a Prime Minister who asserted traditional Australian values, not only the values of a fair go, that Australia was a distinctive independent country. And one of the things I set out to do as Prime Minister uh, was to re-establish balance in our foreign relations. It was very important that we be close to the nations of Asia, mm. but we shouldn't achieve that closeness at the expense of our relations with traditional allies. And uh, I think that was something that was appealing. And I think also my uh, style, I, I wasn't seen uh, as an ultra-establishment figure, not that I denigrate in, in any way what might loosely be called the establishment. I believed in and always have believed in capitalism. I believe that people are entitled to, to work hard and make a lot of money, providing they do it honestly and they pay their fair share of tax. Uh, I don't believe in class. I think one of the reasons the Liberal Party did so well under Scott Morrison in 2019 is that their opponents ran essentially a class-based campaign, and Australians don't really like that. OK, well, let's, let's hear from your critics. This is how the journalist uh, George Megalogenis, uh, the Labor speechwriter Don Watson, and the Liberal historian uh, Judith Brett, uh, this is how they explained your victory in 1996. Australia in 1996 was five years out of recession, but to most voters it still felt like a recession. Each time Paul Keating talked about Mabo, or he talked about the Republic, or he talked about our place in Asia, people thought that he'd forgotten their kitchen table concerns. Those who could afford to have the broader view, if you like, of Australia, um, loved Keating for his vision. Those whose lives were more necessitous needed more persuading than we were able to deliver to them. What he did was to position Keating in particular as a representative of the elites, wearing Italian suits, interested in opera, not being a sort of an ordinary Aussie bloke going to the sport, talking around the barbecue. That was historian Judith Brett, before that George Megalogenis and Don Watson, who was a speechwriter to uh, Paul Keating. Uh, John Howard, fair points. Uh, some of it is fair. I, I don't agree with Judith Beth about the Italian suits in the opera. No, I, think it's, I don't think I'll ever mention that. He's entitled to dress well like anybody and go to the opera. I've, I've been to the opera plenty of times. Now, I don't, I don't think that's, that, that's a fair, but I thought the point uh, George Megalogenis made was, was fair. Uh, people got aggravated by an emphasis on things that didn't touch their daily lives. Now, there's a place for all of those things, and there's a place in our society for a debate about whether you have a republic or a monarchy. Keating and I had different views on that. But uh, the truth is that there was a sense that the concerns of many people mm. uh, had been ignored. But that always happens, of course, when a government loses its appeal and is voted out. My sense is that a lot of your critics from that era couldn't quite come to grips with the fact that you won over key segments of the blue-collar vote to the conservative cause. Well, I don't think they could come to terms with that, but they also couldn't come to terms with the fact that I actually won yeah. a few <laughs> elections. I mean, there was a sense through the first, my first term, 
that was an illegitimate victory, even though I had a 44-seat majority in a parliament of 150, which was an extraordinary majority. There was a sense that it was just a, uh, an aberration and the public would come to its senses and return to the natural order. Well, of course, that did not happen. And the reason it did not happen is that many people who'd hitherto voted Labor all their life uh, decided that the economy was running better under us. They thought we had a more balanced view to our relations with the rest of the world and they were happy to support us. And this is what she said on election night, March 2, 1996. It has been a win that has not just reclaimed those who voted Liberal in the past and those who are by habit swing voters, but it is a victory that has also embraced many traditional Labor Party areas of Australia. And when you look at the swings in Western Sydney and in some of the traditional Labor areas of Sydney, well, I think of the magnificent result in Queensland and that wonderful result in South Australia and the way in which the Liberal Party held its very high proportion of seats in Victoria and the early returns in Western Australia are very encouraging. It is a comprehensive endorsement of the philosophy and the approach of the Liberal Party and to all of you. Now, the political trend you tapped into 25 years ago I think it's fair to say it's become something of a global phenomenon. In 2019, Boris Johnson's Conservatives smashed Labor's so-called red wall of working-class constituencies. This was across the Midlands and the north of England. You see the same thing happening in Britain? To some extent, yes, but Margaret Thatcher attracted a lot of blue-collar voters. Yeah, although some of those areas that Boris won had not voted Tory since the 20s and 30s. No, but, but of course the Labor Party in... 2019 was led by Corbyn, who was appallingly unsuited for that job. And traditional, patriotic, working-class Brits in the north of England could not identify with Jeremy Corbyn, particularly his passive views on anti-Semitism, on the IRA and the like. They just regarded him as wholly unsuitable. And that, that allowed the Tories to smash that red wall. However, in wealthy metropolitan constituencies that voted Remain in the Brexit referendum, the Conservative vote fell in 2019. Yeah, I, that's, that's true. Uh, it, it's important with these comparisons not to overdo them. Mm. And obviously there's a lot in common with politics in Australia and Britain and the United States, because there are a lot that's different. And class is not an issue in Australia to the extent it still is in Britain. And in the United mm. States, the gulf between rich and poor is much greater than it is in Australia. The, the great thing about Australian society is that it is essentially still predominantly a middle-class society, and that's something that we have to hang on to for dear life because it's a very precious asset. It keeps us together and keeps us cohesive. How did today's centre-right parties win over those traditional Labor voters while keeping faith with Liberal metropolitan voters? Well, they do largely what Scott Morrison did at the last election, have sensible economic policies, um, have um, basically a pro-Australian foreign policy, not a foreign policy that uh, appears to uh, placate a section of the world or a group of other countries, but a foreign policy that is based predominantly on the Australian national interest. Mm. I think Scott Morrison has done that very well. I think if he continues to do that, then his appeal uh, to enough of that segment of the electorate will endure. 
1996 campaign, um, writing about it, uh, the New York Times Pulitzer Prize winning columnist, Thomas Friedman, he wrote a book called The Lexus and the Olive Tree. And he mm. claims that you believe that Keating had embraced too much economic reform, too much free trade, and that it meant, quote, Australia's most cherished companies were being bought up by global corporations based abroad and owned by foreigners. Thomas Freeman went on to say, Howard charged that Australians were losing their national icons, indeed their very sovereignty and identity, to the global marketplace. Well, it's palpable. It was palpable nonsense of Thomas Friedman, who I, I, I know and like a lot uh, to have said that, because I, to say that I thought Keating embraced uh, too much economic reform is a bit rich, given that a lot of the reforms uh, he could only embrace because I supported him from opposition. And, and the very, in the very last budget of the Keating government, I've never forgotten it, Kim Beasley, who was then finance minister, rang me in the afternoon of the budget in 95, and he said, John, uh, do your lot still support the final privatisation of the Commonwealth Bank? I said, of course. He said, well, uh, I hope it continues because we'll need your support to get it through the Senate. It's in the budget tonight. And, I mean, that was the final illustration to me uh, of how dependent the Labor Party had become on our support to bring about reforms now that they still continue, understandably, to boast about. Here's your critics at the Financial Review. Uh, they said that you went soft on free trade. You, well, did, you did put a freeze on uh, tariff cuts on <laughs> textiles, clothing and footwear. This is the Financial Review. It means that short-term populism under John Howard has been allowed to defeat the long-term national interest. Well, you have to take a long view about those things and that particular decision they didn't like. And uh, I can understand why the Fin Review, that it was really the... You know, the, the, in the vanguard of the anti-tariff argument in Australia. I can understand why they said that then, but uh, if you look at the long view, take the long view, yes. uh, we were a low-tariff government. And very importantly, when Hawke proposed reducing tariffs when he was Prime Minister, instead of opposing that reduction, uh, John Hewson and others in the Liberal Party, John Hewson was leader then, yes. argued that he should go further. He, he did not take, to his credit, Hewson did not take an opportunistic view. And, and, and that ought to be remembered because if the Labor, Party, the Labor Party's decision to reduce tariffs was a courageous decision. It was, in my view, the most courageous economic decision uh, the Labor Party took in government. But it was greatly aided by the fact that we didn't oppose it, we supported it. It is interesting because if you look at the United States and America, we were talking about Brexit and Trump and how, you know, globalisation, technological change, many people believe has helped explain why so many working class folks have sort of been the forgotten people. We don't really have that problem in this country, certainly not to that extent. No, we, no, no, we don't have that yeah. to the same extent. And this has got a lot to do with the point I made earlier. Mm. Um, we have found the sweet spot as a nation when it comes to government intervention, we intervene sufficiently to protect the really vulnerable. Whereas in Europe, there's over-intervention and some of that intervention is impeding commerce and hiring and so forth. But in America, the safety net is not as strong. And uh, there are, there's a harshness in the American welfare system under both the Democrats and the Republicans that Australians would not accept. And that's very important and it's very relevant for social cohesion.
My guest is John Howard. Uh, talking about the COVID pandemic, uh, it obviously means extraordinary circumstances, but how worried are you that the size and the scope of government has increased so dramatically under a Liberal government? Well, I thought what the government did was necessary and it was a view I privately expressed uh, when, when asked to both the Treasurer and the Prime Minister. It has expanded, but it was necessary and it will contract. Uh, there has to be an end date for the emergency measures, but thus far the evidence is that not only have we been remarkably successful in containing the virus, I mean, our comparison nation like Britain, the, the death rate per head in Britain is 35 times what it is in Australia. Now, that's a remarkable mm. achievement. Mm. I mean, I, I don't say that happily. I mm. feel sorry for the Brits, but the truth is that we have been very successful. Part of the reason is the fiscal stimulus. And I think the Prime Minister and the Treasurer have both been very courageous. Let's talk about international affairs. How serious do you think the American crisis is? I mean, if you think about the challenges, they are daunting. We have a pandemic that's killed 500,000 Americans. It's the greatest economic crisis since the Great Depression. You've got widespread racial, cultural tensions. Are you an optimist or a pessimist about uh, America? Well, I remain a, a, an optimist about America. Look, they, it does have challenges, but <clears throat> I'm old enough to vividly remember the 1960s. And if anybody thinks that the present crisis in America is worse than it was in the 1960s. I think of 1968, mm. Lyndon Johnson bows out because of all sorts of pressure, particularly over Vietnam. You have the assassination of Robert Kennedy and Martin Luther King. Mm. You have large areas of cities being burnt to the ground. Uh, the, the division in America in the 1960s was monumental and superimposed on that, of course, was enormous social and cultural change uh, which occurred during that decade. So I think America has, has big challenges. I think the handling of the pandemic by the former president was very bad. It mm. probably contributed more than anything else. Well, and the state, state governors as and well. state governors, mm. yes. But in the end, people in a federation, even when states are very strong, they still look to the bloke at the top. And I think his handling of that was appalling. Uh, it really was. Uh, as somebody who believes he did a number of very good things and aspects of his foreign policy uh, were ones that I supported, but uh, his handling of the pandemic was terrible. China, our relationship boomed during your tenure and as a result, our economy soared. Now, in retrospect, given that China is clearly converting its economic might into strategic might, have we helped feed the beast? I don't believe we have. I mean, you could perhaps single out a this or that statement or this or that speech, but the change in China has been in China. The two leaders that I dealt with, Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao, were vastly different characters from Xi Jinping. They were both authoritarian communist dictators, but they wanted good relations with the rest of the world, particularly Jiang Zemin, who was personally very attracted to Western culture Western music, Western movies. And, and I remember him cheering the 2001 APEC meeting just after the terrorist attack. The APEC meeting was in Shanghai. He delivered his speech in English. He conducted the whole proceedings in English and he was very solicitous towards the United States. He didn't say, we want to embrace democracy and, and, and there was no traffic in Shanghai at the time, which was a sign of a, a country that sort of was willing to call the shots on who could drive their cars at yeah. the time when, when you had foreign visitors. But the fact is that 
the mindset of China's leadership then was very different. And, and this is a huge challenge for the Morrison government. Finally, John Howard, accomplishments, achievements, failures, regrets. Uh, Scott Prasser, who's an historian of the Liberal Party, he says your greatest achievement was that you did not fade away after you lost the leadership. You kept on. According to Prasser, your second greatest achievement, you kept Labor out and you kept on keeping Labor out. You saved us from Peacock and Hewson and Downer and Costello. This is Scott Prasser. However, Prasser says Howard's greatest failing, he let Kevin Rudd in. <laughs> well, that's a fair criticism. So that I did lose to Kevin Rudd uh, I, and, and, and you know, I accept the blame for that. I, I, did, I did so on the night. Um, I think, um, you know, I had my successes and failures. I think the greatest mistake I ever made as Prime Minister was allowed the Pakistani army to talk me into bowling on <laughs> the mountains of Kashmir. That was, that was a huge failure. I just wish we could play that footage on Radio National. <laughs> that was a shocker. <laughs> Terrible. But there's an old saying, the time to go is when everyone tells you to stay. In 2006, a lot of people told you to stay. That would have been a good time to go. Well, you, you, with the benefit of hindsight, yes, but I, I took the decision to stay in through because that was the overwhelmingly majority view inside the parliamentary party. And um, I obviously, uh, the Australian public decided they wanted to change. I think they would have voted the government out, uh, no matter who was the leader, but you can never tell of that. They, Gordon Brown replaced Tony Blair. It didn't save him mm. at the 2010 election in Britain. You can speculate about those things, but the truth is in the end, I accepted the verdict of the Australian public, uh, unlike uh, the former president, uh, Donald Trump, yeah. whose who's, who's greatest failure mm. uh, was his unwillingness to accept the verdict of his fellow countrymen and women. As George H.W. Bush put it on the night of his election loss to Bill Clinton, we respect the majesty of the democratic system. Well, that is right. John Howard, always a great pleasure to have you on Radio National. Great pleasure, Tom, for me. This is Between the Lines with Tom Switzer. Yes, indeed, you are with me, Tom Switzer, on Between the Lines, on air, online and on your ABC Listen app. Now, the relationship between Canberra and Beijing continues to be turbulent. To say that China is a nation pumped up on nationalism, well, that's an understatement. But later in the show, we'll delve into Chinese nationalism and find out how World War II helped shape the national psychology on mainland China. But first, intelligence. Is home affairs too big? Well, you'd have to be living under a rock not to notice that Australia is in a radically different security environment than it was just two years ago. The Prime Minister, he's likened the situation to the 1930s. And in the last six months, we've seen a massive increase to the budgets for defence and our intelligence agencies. Now, the external threats are undeniable. You just think of the rising power of China. But are we at risk of undermining our political freedoms by expanding the powers of security agencies too much? How big and powerful should we let our security agencies get? And what kind of oversight exists to ensure that the intelligence is not collected or used for political purposes? What do you think? Well, Peter Edwards is the former official historian and the author of several award-winning books. His most recent one is called Law, Politics and Intelligence, A Life of Robert Hope. Welcome back to the show, Peter. 
Thanks very much, Tom. Thanks for having me. And Jacinta Carroll, she's a visiting fellow and senior research fellow at the National Security College at ANU. Good to be with you again, Jacinta. Great to be back. Thanks, Tom. Now, let's start with the HOPE commissions in the 70s and 80s. Peter, this is your thesis. Take us back to that time. Why are those commissions so important? Well, between the mid-70s and the mid-80s, over a 10-year period, uh, three successive prime ministers, Whitlam, Fraser and Hawke, commissioned the same man, Justice Robert Hope, to conduct major inquiries into the intelligence uh, agencies. Uh, what he set up was not just, uh, not just an inquiry into an agency, uh, and ASIO was the only declared one and quite controversial, but he set up a whole system uh, for the agencies uh, setting out what each what agencies Australia needed, what each one should do and what it should not do, how they should interact with each other, how they should interact with departments, with individual ministers, with the cabinet uh, and cabinet committees and with the international partners, uh, those we now know as Five Eyes. And he emphasised a number of things. He particularly emphasised that the intelligence system should serve the whole of government and not be unduly influenced, uh, as it was when he started, by one or two very powerful departments. Uh, and towards that end, he said there should be a central coordinating agency which would only be involved with assessment, and he allocated collection assessment and dissemination to different agencies, uh, this one would be only concerned with assessment, unlike the American CIA, and with its uh, the independence of its uh, assessments guaranteed by legislation uh, to be independent from ministerial or departmental pressures. And he said a number of other things about the relationships between intelligence and law enforcement agencies. So keeping intelligence and policy making separate keeping intelligence and law enforcement uh, separate were among uh, the, the basic principles. Okay, so that's the Robert Hope recommendations. Are they now under threat from a new model uh, that's been pushed by Michael Pizzullo? He's the Secretary of Home Affairs. I mean, is there a growing risk that intelligence will become more politicised? Well, what happened was in 2018, the then Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull, made two announcements on the same day which I think pulled in different directions. One was accepting the uh, recommendations of a very good report by Michael Lestrange and Stephen Merchant, which among many other things said that that central agency should be upgraded to become the Office of National Intelligence with a, a clearer and stronger role in coordinating uh, intelligence from all different agencies before it went to the, the, the policymakers. And that agency is under the ambit of the, uh, the portfolio of Prime Minister and Cabinet, which symbolises it, its central role. But at the same time, they announced, and Lestrange and Merchant weren't aware of this, that this was coming, the creation of Home Affairs, which consolidated a large number of intelligence and security and law enforcement agencies, all under the one department, which cuts directly uh, against that uh, thrust of the, uh, of the HOPE uh, inquiries, that you shouldn't have one department so influential. So we now have what's called the National Intelligence Community, a, a total of 10 agencies. Five of them come under the portfolio of Home Affairs. And this blurs the lines, I think, between mm. intelligence and policy making. 
it's not good for intelligence assessments to be unduly influenced by what they call the preordained policy priorities and preferences of one area of government. And that, I think, is precisely the danger that this the creation of home affairs is establishing within okay. the system. So Peter's not alone here, Jacinta. I mean, other scholars have said it's more difficult to ensure proper oversight with so many agencies under the home affairs uh, departmental structure. So the question here is, Jacinta, is home affairs too big? Well, it certainly is a very large organisation and it's one of the largest in this new central agency portfolio. So the question really is, is the home affairs portfolio operating effectively and appropriately? And by appropriate, I mean in accordance with these foundation principles that Peter's touched upon that were established by Justice Hope and have really been uh, the guiding light for the role of intelligence and security in Australia as a liberal democracy. So these foundation principles put in place by HOPE and reinforced by a series of independent intelligence reviews. Peter's just mentioned the most recent in 2017. But they're very much focused on ensuring that we strike a balance between effective security, dealing with increasing threats and increasing diversity of threats, while also ensuring that this is clearly in the service of a liberal democracy that has human rights as its founding point. And that that balance typically isn't neat. It never is in any liberal democracy. It's always ongoing. So the, the sticky issue here, as Peter has mentioned, is that our most recent independent intelligence review, which is the long-term considered overall picture review, fairly regularly held every few years or so um, in the past, past uh, 20 years, was the opportunity to look where our agencies had gone, where the threat had manifested and how to best organise these things in terms of dealing with the threat, having effective security and having a balance. And, of course, that consideration didn't include this very significant portfolio bringing in immigration, the AFP and ASIO in the portfolio. Peter, you heard Jacinta there. How would you respond to her argument? Yes, uh, the home affairs uh, idea was first mooted uh, back when Labor came in, uh, won the 2007 election, uh, with a proposal for uh, something that was then modelled on the American Department of Homeland Security. And that was put up Mm -hmm. to a report by Rick Smith, a highly respected public servant, former Secretary of Defence, among other things, uh, who said that this was not the model we should be following. What we really needed was to have these various agencies each developing a high level of skills in in their own respective areas and then being nimble enough and flexible enough to collaborate as necessary according to the demands of the time because the the way different agencies have to uh, collaborate like border the border force and uh, police and asio and so forth is different when you're dealing with terrorism, for example, uh, compared with when you're dealing with a pandemic. Home Affairs is supposedly modelled on the British Foreign Office. It's not really appropriate, I think, for the Australian uh, setting, and it cuts. A, it was actually recommended against by a, a well-worded, a well-argued independent report in 2008. Okay, but what about the Australian Signals Directorate? Uh, Jacinta, back in the old days, we used to talk mainly about ASIO, but these days everything happens online and the agency with the most rapidly growing powers is the ASD. And, of course, that was in the news a year or so ago when it landed the Canberra journalist Anika Smithhurst into hot water. 
Is ASD getting too powerful? Jacinta Carroll. Well, ASD, the Australian Signals Directorate, previously the Defence Signals Directorate, has um, a long history that starts obviously in the around the Second World War of being um, a code-breaking unit, much like we see in the British and the American experience. And that, of course, is very clear when you're at war, you have certain technical um, interceptions that need to be made, and that that's moved into ASD in more recent years being a foreign-focused signals intelligence service. And that's all very neat because, again, going back to the principles of Australia's security, there are different things that uh, the government can do in terms of foreigners than it can do uh, in in terms of its own citizens uh, where law enforcement is priority. What's happened recently is that the security threat and indeed other threats, criminal and others, are increasingly happening online and Mm. in the cyber environment Mm -hmm, in a way mm -hmm. that was never in the 70s and the 80s and when ASD's role became more public. So what's happened uh, in the last couple of years, again, since ASD has become a statutory authority, is that it has taken pragmatically a role to use its particular technical skills and capabilities to assist other agencies where needed. So, for example, to assist um, uh, cyber crime investigation across a whole range of crime types, um, including obviously um, scams um, as well as sexual exploitation online and others. And that that's a very pragmatic use of that capability that Rick Smith and others, when they've considered how do we deal with all of these different agencies, envisaged um, as they've undertaken reports and reviews over the over the past 20 years or so. So what's happening now is that ASD is coming firmly to the fore uh, in some proposed legislation that would allow it to be able to use its very intrusive and capable powers to assist other legal entities, um, so various police forces and and, um, criminal investigation units and others, uh, to, under warrant, undertake investigations to support them. So this is a good thing in that it's not expanding these cyber offensive and defensive capabilities into other agencies. But again, it's potentially using a very significant capability in areas that it hasn't been used before and including in the domestic environment. So as this evolves, we need to have a lot of scrutiny and oversight over the mechanisms under which this would be allowed. Final question to you, Jacinta, because you read every submission to the Parliamentary Press Freedom Inquiry. Are you confident that we have the balance between secrecy and transparency right? Look, it's an interesting question, Tom, and certainly before the the very high-profile search warrants execution, the raids on um, journalists and the ABC, I thought that the balance and the powers and also the very live mechanism that we have of review was sufficient. So the review mechanisms and oversight mechanisms include an Inspector General of Intelligence and Security, uh, Commonwealth and State Ombudsman for for non-intelligence agencies, an independent national security legislation monitor who who does exactly what the job says, can own motion, look at any laws of concerns or any cases of concern, and also a a very active uh, parliamentary joint committee on intelligence and security, as well as your normal things, courts, um, Senate committees, inquiries, and so on. Um, In a responsible government, which is the form of of liberal democracy we have, it is actually the the responsibility of government to... um, communicate and inform and educate the public about how powers are being used, particularly those that might affect individuals. It's quite difficult to navigate for the average punter uh, 
an understanding of what our laws are, uh, how the, the over, this oversight and accountability is ensured. I work mostly work on the security side. I do understand the threats. I understand the complexity of issues that these agencies and the many public servants across the board, whether they be in uniform or not, whether they be at federal, state or working in industry, uh, but it is very important that as we deal with these threats and use very significant powers in doing so, that we always remember to be open to the people who are served by these officials and by governments. And I'm not sure we've got the balance right yet. That was Jacinta Carroll, Visiting Fellow and Senior Research Fellow at the National Security College at ANU. And Peter Edwards, he's the author of Law, Politics and Intelligence, A Life of Robert Hope. This is Between the Lines with Tom Switzer, making sense of Australia's place in the world. Well, we've recently marked the 75th anniversary of the end of World War II, an event which still shapes the world and how we in the West understand our role in it. But we rarely hear stories from one of the most important allied countries in the war. I'm talking about China. It's interesting, isn't it? Well, my next guest argues that in the last few decades, China has been revising the way World War II fits into its national culture a project which underpins China's more assertive international presence. Rana Mitter is the director of the University China Centre and Professor of the History and Politics of Modern China at the University of Oxford. His new book is called China's Good War, How World War II is Shaping a New Nationalism. Rana, welcome to Between the Lines. Tom, it's a real pleasure to be on the program. Now, the story of China's involvement in World War II, it's not very well known in the West. I think most people couldn't even give a decent outline of China's role or how many Chinese died even. Please do provide a, a brief overview. Absolutely. And you're right to say that I think it's fair that the China theatre is probably the single least well understood theatre of World War II of all of the major areas of combat. So very briefly, it's just worth thinking about a few quick statistics on, on what happened. The war itself was the longest theatre of war. The war broke out in 1937 and went all the way till 1945, of course. During that time, more than 10 million Chinese military and civilian were killed during the course of the war, both in combat, but also through disease, disasters and oh. all the other things that came with with the war. And almost more than that, you might say, something like 80 to 100 million Chinese became refugees in their own country. So it was a really devastating event. But one fact that we should also bear in mind, and this is something that I think Westerners really should remember, during the height of that war, all the way till Pearl Harbor at the end of 1941, Chinese resistance, Chinese troops were holding down over half a million Japanese troops who otherwise could have been redeployed, you know, to fight the Soviet Union, to invade British India, to head into Southeast Asia. So when we think about the whole complete arena of World War II in Asia, that Chinese resistance to the Japanese over more than four and a half years alone before actually the Western allies came in is a really important episode of the war and we ought to know more about it. Well, indeed, and you argue that, at least until recently, China's national self-image was primarily shaped during the Cold War. How did China see itself in the Mao Zedong years? Well, one of the reasons that we know less than we might do about China's role in World War II is that actually, ironically, the government of Chairman Mao, Mao Zedong, during those Cold War years, actually rather limited, heavily limited discussion of what had happened in World War II. So they did talk about their own contribution, the guerrilla warfare, for which the communists became pretty famous, uh, not just in China, but around the world. But they didn't talk about the one historically embarrassing fact that it was actually their old opponents, the nationalist government, or Kuomintang, as they were known in 
Chinese, of Chiang Kai-shek, that actually did the vast majority of the battlefield fighting in places like Shanghai, cities like Changsha, Zhengzhou. These were actually places where the communists really didn't have much of a role. So it wasn't until the 1980s and the, the, the kind of thawing of the Cold War that the communist government in China was willing to talk about other people, nationalists, huh. Americans, British, and others who had contributed to the Allied victory as well. Well, that is fascinating. So the main battles you're saying are fought essentially by the nationalists who, of course, when they lost the civil war, they fled to Formosa, which is known as Taiwan these days. Um, Rana, does this mean that the nationalists and Chiang Kai-shek, have they been rescued from the dustbin of Chinese history? How have they been rehabilitated? So one of the most astonishing historical changes in China in the last uh, certainly uh, 30 years or so, and I'd say even more so actually within just the last few years, is the rehabilitation of the old enemies of Chairman Mao, the Chinese nationalists under Chiang Kai-shek. So we have to remember these are the guys who Mao defeated in that epic civil war between the two sides, between 1946 and, and 1949. And having been exiled to Taiwan, they were pretty much seen as the devil incarnate waiting offshore to reinvade China. So there had to be essentially a very significant change in the way that China thought about itself, which began in the 1980s and 1990s, in which actually, in many ways, China was very disillusioned with the political disaster of the Cultural Revolution of the 60s and 70s, when China had essentially gone to war with itself. And they were looking for a new, different sort of patriotic narrative that could bring everyone together, whether they'd been communists, anti-communists, nationalists, whatever it might be. And World War II really fitted the bill. So in doing that, they actually, without ever stating that they were openly doing this, decided to rehabilitate many of those battles, many of those um, events that had taken place between 1937 and 45, where not the communists, but their nationalist opponents had actually been in charge of the fighting. And this meant that for the first time, a much more broad, actually much more objective view of China's World War II history began to appear in China. And to this day, that broader a, a broader interpretation of the wartime history, bringing in all of the parties who fought, as well as those who actually supported the Japanese, is now much more discussed in China. It's not just a story about the communists. Yes, but where does Taiwan fit into this renewed celebration of China's role in World War II? Taiwan fits into a really interesting place. Essentially, it varies depending on who's in power in Taiwan. So although Taiwan, of course, is uh, always claimed by the mainland as an integral part of their territory, which they want to get back, when the pro-nationalist um, Kuomintang are actually in power, which most recently was about five years ago, actually relations with the Chinese mainland have become quite warm. And actually, I know from my own experience of being in the summer of 2015, the 70th anniversary of, of the end of World War II in Taipei, that plenty of scholars and even the odd official from the mainland went over to basically join in with the Taiwanese commemoration of that shared experience of World War II, which they commemorate. But the current ruling party in Taiwan, the Democratic People's Party, DPP, is much more in favor of an autonomous or even independent mm -hmm, Taiwan. Mm -hmm. they, don't, they don't really share that idea that the shared history of World War II is part of theirs, not least since there's a little historical, historical piece of embarrassment from that point of view, which is that many Taiwanese during the wartime period were, of course, colonial citizens of Japan, and they actually fought in the war not on the Chinese side, but the Japanese side. This is Between the Lines on ABC Radio National, helping you make sense of Australia's place in the world. My guest is Oxford historian Rana Mitter. He's the author of a new book. It's called China's Good War, 
how World War II is shaping a new nationalism. Now, according to China's revised interpretation of modern history, Rana, World War II didn't get started in Asia when Japan struck Pearl Harbor. This would have been 1941. It started much earlier, either with the Manchurian crisis in the early 30s, or at least at the start of the Sino-Japanese War in 1937. Why is pushing back the start date so important? If you want to sort of summarise why this topic of World War II is so important in China today, it's because actually the war has never really been history in China. It's always been current affairs, and it always links to the way in which China thinks about itself in its own backyard. So at the most simple level, you could say that the dating of the war if it's extended, if you start from the invasion of Manchuria by the Japanese in 1931, then you can actually argue that World War II and Japan's war against China lasted not just for eight years, from 1937, when it broke out on the mainland, uh, till 1945, but actually for 14 years. Mm. And that's a very powerful rhetorical weapon, Tom, in which you can basically say, look how hard we suffered. We, the Chinese, fought harder and longer and suffered more than any other allied power in World War II. And if you're making the argument which China is today that not just the Americans, but the Chinese should also be able to have a big say in the shaping of modern Asia because they fought and bled and sacrificed and died during that Second World War experience, then saying you fought a longer war than anyone else is part of that rhetorical strategy. Such an important subject. I bet your bottom dollar a lot of young people don't even know that China, like France, by the way, was an occupied power during the war. Question here is, how does this new revised history deal with Japanese occupation. Tell us more about that. It's an incredibly sensitive subject, Tom, but a really interesting one. And in previous books, including as was this one, I've done a little bit to talk about how that topic of collaboration, a bit like Vichy France, for those who know European history, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. operates. The, the, very, the very short answer is that it's really talked about very little as a sort of horrible, embarrassing part of history. But what we're coming to see is that occasionally people, I'll give you one example, one of China's best known TV interview uh, hosts, a uh, man in China who's uh, perhaps almost as famous as you are in Australia, Tom, who uh, called Sui Yongyue. <laughs> And he basically actually wrote publicly that he could sort of see the point of people like the uh, nationalist uh, leader who went over to the Japanese, a man called Wang Jingwei. And he said that, you know, sometimes you have to understand that when people don't know what's going to happen in history, Japan's invaded. Nobody's coming to help China. The years, let's say, 1938, it looks like China's going to be defeated. Maybe someone needed to go and have those negotiations with Japan to try and bring about at least some sort of peace to stop the bombs falling. Now, today, after you know, 1945, we know that the war was won by the Allies. And of course, that looks like a, a treacherous and very mistaken move. But there are a few voices out there in China who say, let's look at it from the point of view of those who had to make the decision at the time rather than in retrospect. So still a highly controversial subject subject, but one on which there's a small, limited amount of debate even now going on in China. Let's bring this to the present. Here in Australia, as I'm sure you're well aware, we've been on the receiving end of this new wolf warrior diplomacy, which basically describes the very strident and bellicose statements recently made by uh, Chinese diplomats. Now, I know you have uh, some time for the John Mearsheimer thesis. He's a past guest on this program. So to Graham Allison, that China is a revisionist power seeking regional dominance and global reach. Question, do you see that as the logical extension of China's new nationalism, this new wolf warrior diplomacy? 
Actually, I don't entirely, Tom. Although the Wolf Warrior Diplomacy, this very kind of aggressive language that's being used to countries like Australia, towards the UK actually recently as well, and certainly the United States, is something that we're seeing quite a lot of. I think it's worth understanding that the legacy of World War II, in China's own words, is something different and more cooperative if we can actually uh, track it down and basically put their own words to them. You'll see that people from Xi Jinping down, also Wang Yi, the, the foreign minister of China, have been going around the world saying that one of the biggest legacies of China's participation in World War II is that China was not just one of, but the first signatories to the United Nations Charter. And we have to remember, around that United Nations Charter back in 1945, there quickly came a Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which was co-written by a Chinese, P.H. Zhang, uh, the international trade organizations that we know today. All of that is a product of World War II that the Chinese really want to uh, uh, keep, keep hold of. So I would say that actually when we talk back to China, we should remind them of their own commitments to the legacy of World War II being genuine cooperation in international government. In that world, 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 wolf warrior diplomacy does not fit in. It's aggressive, it's pointless, it doesn't help. Instead, let's remind the Chinese themselves about their pledge of cooperation, and that, I think, is the real lesson of China's participation. Yeah, but what does that mean about China's ability to compromise on issues like its claim over, say, the South China Sea or Hong Kong? Well, I think in those areas, we have to be very, very clear if we're talking about the liberal world here, which Australia and the UK are certainly members, in making it clear that there are certain areas where we have absolutely the right to speak out. I mean, Hong Kong is one of those, the South China Sea is another. The reason being, and quite simply, one could put this to the Chinese, that China is now a global power like the United States, and global powers have to act with global responsibility. They can't simply go out there and do what they want. And that's also a lesson of World War II. It's about taking responsibilities as well as simply claiming the credit for commemoration. We should always remember the Chinese contribution to World War II, and we do we do badly when we forget it. But we should also remember the lesson of that is that global powers have to be global cooperative powers, and that's just as important for China as it is for the US or any other country. Rana Mitter, he's a professor of the history and politics of modern China at the University of Oxford, and his new book is called China's Good War, How World War II is Shaping a New Nationalism. Well, that's it for another week of Between the Lines here on RN. I'm Tom Switzer. Hope you can tune in again next time. listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.